Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Both its authority and its clarity. For many people see gray, God's word speaks in terms that are always just black and white. The Bible is absolute, definitive, and provocative. It is unconcerned with political correctness and therefore unafraid to confront people with the reality of their true condition. As a result, Scripture makes a stark contrast between those who are saved and those who are lost. It describes those who are with Jesus and those who are against him and those who are in the world and those who are not of the world, those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil, those in the kingdom of God's beloved Son and those in the satanic kingdom of darkness. But in this passage, Jesus is going to introduce another aspect of this contrast. And it is between those who are his friends and those who are friends of this world. Friendship with Jesus creates an intimate relationship with God and it brings with it joy inexpressible that is full of glory. On the other hand, friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Therefore, Whoever wishes to make himself a friend of this world makes themselves an enemy of God and are thus subject to his wrath. This is a message that the church of our time needs to hear. Look at verse 16 with me. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go bear fruit and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you that you love one another. In verse 16 he says, You did not choose me, I chose you. The Bible says that left to ourselves, no one will seek after God. Jesus did not say, I've been looking at you and I've decided that you're worthy of being my friends. That's not what he says. Instead he says, I have chosen you. You did not choose me, but I have chosen you to be my friend. I have laid down my life simply because I love you. In Deuteronomy 7, God says to the Israelites, I did not love you because you were the greatest of the nations. I loved you because I loved you. Why does God love us? Simply because he decided to. He loved you because he loved you. That is the heart and the full substance of it. As Spurgeon has written, Election is based on affection, and that affection is its own fountain. Think of it this way. If you walked into a store and made $100,000 worth of purchases and then pulled out a check upon which it was endorsed by Bill Scott, you would be laughed out of that store. But if you walked into the same store with an authorized check from a different bill, as in Bill Gates, there would be no problem because the issue isn't how rich you are, but how rich the person upon whose account you are drawing is. And that's the beautiful thing about our acceptance this morning. Our standing isn't based upon how many devotions I've had this week or how many people I've witnessed to this month or how many hours I've spent in prayer. No. While all those things are important, that's not the main issue. The main issue is... I draw from the bank of heaven based solely upon the riches of Jesus Christ 
who saved me. The story is told that as Napoleon was talking to a group of high-ranking officers, his horse got spooked and bolted away. A quick-thinking private observing the scene pursued the runaway on his own steed and was able to return Napoleon's horse back to him safely. Well done, Captain, said Napoleon upon his return. The private with eyes as big as saucers saluted and said, Yes, sir. Then he went immediately to the supply tent, got himself a captain's uniform, and moved into the officer's quarters. He never said, I don't deserve it. I should have worked my way up through the ranks. Or I need to do more to earn this. No, he just said, yes, sir. Likewise, the Lord calls us friends, and all is left for us to do is to say, yes, sir. Every other religion says, you want to be a Buddhist? Here's how you make yourself a Buddhist. You want to be a Muslim? Here's how you make yourself a Muslim. But Christianity says you want to be a Christian? You can't do it on your own. Why? Because Romans 3 says that no one seeks for God. Our natural hearts are hostile towards God. Therefore, if you are seeking God today, it is because God has came to you and God has opened your heart, and God has softened your heart, and God has empowered your heart to believe. And in the big scheme of things, that's really all that matters. There's a place where Jesus sends his disciples out, and he's given them power to heal people and to preach and to cast out demons. They come back and they say, Hey, Lord, even the demons are subjected to us. To this, Jesus answers them, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What is he saying? We say, wow, what a great week. I got a huge raise at work or the woman or the man of my dreams I think is interested in me, and now I'm all set. That's like coming to Jesus and saying, even the demons are subject to us. But Jesus would say to us, what worldly thinking. That's this week. What about next week? As long as your names are written in heaven, as long as your citizenship is there, as long as you're resting in things like that, as long as you're rejoicing in those things, in these you should be joyful. You see, the difference between the Christian and the world is not so much what you believe in, but what you rejoice in. If you're rejoicing in just secular things, then those things run your life and you lack freedom and perspective. Jesus says, I say to you, don't just rejoice in those things, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. As long as we are in the world, the only thing we can count on, they say, is death and taxes. Actually, you don't have to pay taxes. You'll go to jail, but you don't have to pay them. Therefore, if that's what our confidence is in, we'll be up and down with all kinds of different mood swings, rejoicing because we're only rejoicing and worldly things, and things like our status, and our accomplishments, and our performance. However, if you are a Christian, you are saved solely by grace. You're not saved because of your faithfulness, or me because of my faithfulness, which is a good thing, because every one of us can be fickle at times. Jesus said to his disciples in the garden, would you please stay awake for me just one hour? I'm about to die. I am under such tremendous pressure. Now, 
Imagine somebody close to you calls you up and says, I am having the worst night of my entire life. Since you're my friend, will you please come over and just sit with me? I don't know what's going to happen, but I feel like I'm going to die. So you run on over and you sit on the couch and the person starts to prod his heart to you. And when they look up from their tears about 90 seconds later, there you are asleep on the couch. There's even a little river of drool trickling right down the corner of your mouth. I ask you, what kind of friend is that? And the guard just says, please just stay awake with me just for one hour. Instead, they all fell instantly asleep. But before we put our thumbs in our suspenders and cluck our tongues with disapproval, here's the thing. That's a picture of you and me. The reason that Jesus is a friend to you and me is not because we're good friends, but because he is a good friend. He loves you not because you are perfect, but because he is perfect. That means that he already loves you, not on the basis of anything you have done or ever will do. Therefore, our names are written in heaven, and our true country is over the horizon. That is our inheritance, and that is our future. Isaiah says, see, I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. And so our names are now written in heaven. If you have trusted in Christ, your eternal destiny is set. You are chosen by God and nothing will pluck you out of his hand. Your position in Christ is secure. However, your production is another matter. If you abide in Christ, that is to obey him primarily by loving others, you will enjoy some specific results. First, prayers are answered. Now, this is not to suggest that God will become our own personal genie. This promise is conditional. If we are connected to the vine and we are becoming more and more like his son, our prayers will not be selfish, but the kind of request that Jesus would make. Jesus received everything he requested from the Father because they were consistently and completely aligned in their thinking. Second, God is glorified. As we model the character of Jesus, obeying his commands in the same way he obeyed those of the Father, the triune God receives all the credit. He delights to see us reflecting his character, and he looks for opportunities to pride his blessings upon his children in response. Third, love is stimulated. Note the absence of struggle or exertion in this. As we abide in Christ, the character qualities that honor the Lord begin to emerge like grapes naturally growing from a healthy branch. And because God is love, others will notice his divine quality developing within us. <clears throat> Let's be honest. Soon as how we're in church and all. We don't always feel like conquerors or spiritual successes. Sometimes we feel very much the opposite. As Charles Swindoll has written, do you ever feel like a frog? Frogs feel slow and low, ugly and drooped and pooped. I know one told me in counseling. The frog feeling comes when you want to be bright, but you're average. You want to share, but you are selfish. You want to be thankful, but you are filled with resentment. When you want to be great, but instead you are small. 
when you want to care, but you are indifferent. Yes, at one time or another, each of us has found himself on a lily pad, floating down the great river of life, frightened and disgusted, but too frightened to budge. We all know how the fairy tale goes, he says. Once upon a time, there was a frog, except he was not really a frog. He was really a prince. He only looked and felt like a frog, and only the kiss of a beautiful maiden could save him. So there he sat, an unkissed prince in frog form, and one day a beautiful maiden gave him a big smack. Suddenly he was a handsome prince, and of course they lived happily ever after. Swindoll then asked, What is the task of the church? It is kissing frogs, and of course also allowing ourselves to be kissed. Let me put it like this. As we continue to abide we will more and more love the unlovely. We will have loving relationships with one another. As we draw upon Christ, realizing that apart from him we can do nothing, we are going to love all of his branches. When our relationship with God is what it ought to be, when we are walking, resting, and relying on him, it is remarkable how loving that we can truly be. Thus, for followers of Christ, his calling assures us, I have chosen you. Jesus said, you have not chosen me. That means that we are not our own this morning. We have been bought with a price. And so because of that, we have no rights, only responsibilities. Following Christ is not our proposal. It is merely our response and obedience to what he has done for us. We are called in the Bible bond slaves of Christ. And therefore, the only rights we have are those that he affords to us. So we could say to him, you say we are your friends, giving us the privilege and power of prayer and the right to be ordained by you for service and ministry. Incredible. That's a wonderful package you've given us. And now we'll just carry it on out. We're going to make the decision to love. Now it seems if you, if, I, if any of us do that, if we really love the people that we would be popular and embraced by everyone. After all, everybody loves the loving. But watch what Jesus says. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. The Greek word for world there is cosmos, and it refers to, its, in this context, to the evil, fallen world system that is comprised of unregenerate people and controlled by Satan. By the way, we also get our word cosmetic from that word, and it literally means to bring chaos out of order. Or order out of chaos. I got it backwards, sorry. <clears throat> Quote Forrest Gump, that's all I got to say about that. The world does not mean the planet Earth per se. The planet does not have a mind, so it cannot be evil. Nature has been twisted and corrupted by evil, but it is not evil in itself. In fact, Paul personifies nature as an innocent bystander, suffering the ill effects of evil, groaning for redemption by its rightful owner. Instead, the world represents the fallen world system which operates according to Satan's values and is subject to the curse of sin. The world also represents that portion of humanity that lives by, this, by those values and willingly serves its ends. 
because Satan hates God, he also hates the people of God. They are targets for his wrath. As Peter reminds us that he walks around prowling like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. So since its ruler hates believers, it's hardly surprising that the world also hates them because they are not of this world. The world resents believers because their godly lives condemn its evil works. Proverbs 29:27 says that he who is upright in the way is abominable to the wicked. In 1 John 3:12, John illustrated that principle with a story of the first murder in human history where we read that Cain was of the evil one and so slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? The Bible says because his deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were righteous. On the other hand, in Romans 1.32, we see that the world applauds those who embrace evil. Jesus will now begin to describe the contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. One is characterized by love, obedience, unity, and grace. The other by hatred, selfishness, rejection, and persecution. As we study this, the importance of our love for one another should become as obvious as a light shining in the darkness. The world either loves or hates. There is no neutral ground. And the world loves or hates depending upon whether one is in agreement with the world or not. The disposition of the world is completely conditional, which is one reason we know that the conditional acceptance offered by legalistic religion is of the world and not of Christ. The world religions, of which false religion is a part, close itself in hatred, sophistication, refinement, culture, and peace. The world system functions on the basis of conformity. And as long as a person follows the fads and fashions and accepts the values of the world, he or she will be accepted. But the Christian refuses to be conformed to this world. Today there's a myth that the world is more tolerant than it used to be because it now supposedly accepts all points of view. If you were to stand on a street corner in America and ask people, what do you think of Jesus Christ? You'd probably get a pretty favorable response. He would be described as a good teacher, as one who taught us about how to love. But we can be quite sure this morning that the world speaks well of him only because they misunderstand who he is and why he came to earth and what he has to say about himself. Listen to his own words. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, since you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, that is why the world hates you. By and large, the world today has a favorable opinion of Christ only because it misunderstands him. Part of my job as a pastor is to warn you. So this morning, I am warning you. The world hates you, and it is only going to get worse. Despite what Joel Olstein says, true Christians are not going to experience their best life now. You need some proof? A research group based in Phoenix was surprised to encounter the degree of abuse directed towards Christians. 
It was the kind of antagonism that went far beyond just a difference of opinion on issues. According to the company president, evangelicals were called illiterate, greedy, psychos, racist, stupid, narrow-minded bigots, idiots, fanatics, nutcases, my personal favorite, screaming loons, but also delusional, simpletons, pompous, morons, nitwits, and freaks. I could give you some more, but that's starting to get a little insulting, isn't it? I am so glad we live in a culture where everyone is tolerant of other views, aren't you? But here's the irony. The people who are all too ready to deny freedom to those who disagree with them are perceived by our culture as being tolerant, whereas those who dare to express a differing view are called intolerant. In other words, the philosophy of the ungodly is to preach tolerance but practice intolerance against anyone who has the courage to express any kind of opposing point of view. The late Haddon Robinson compared modern Christianity in our secular culture to being the visiting opponent in a home team stadium, where outside of just a few of our fans, the wider culture sits in the stands shouting hateful descriptions at us and rejoicing at our losses. Not only that, Opposition takes many forms, and love faces a stern test when we find ourselves the objects of either indifference or even a kind of a snobbish disdain. I don't know if you knew this, but the new atheists openly mock Christians and all of their beliefs, with Richard Dawkins dismissing all religion as a virus of the mind. This has been getting increasingly worse over time, by the way. Consider the reaction of Virginia Woolf after she learned of the poet T.S. Eliot's conversion to Christianity. She wrote, her, she wrote her sister these words, quote, I have had a most shameful and distressing interview with poor dear Tom Eliot, who may be called dead to us from this day forward. He has become an Anglican who believes in God and immortality and goes to church. I was really shocked. A corpse would seem to be more credible than he is. She finishes by saying, I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. So we see that intolerance has always been in vogue, even in the early 1900s. So Jesus balanced the promises of comfort and blessing with a warning to the disciples of the hostility that awaited them. In the face of the world's hatred, the disciples would need each other desperately. The Lord therefore re repeated his earlier instruction, This I command you once again, that you love one another. That command forms kind of a transition between the Lord's promise to the disciples and his warning of the world's hatred, a warning that should motivate them and us to love one another. He says in fairly blunt and difficult to mistake terms in verse 18, keep in mind this one thing, the world hates you. It means hostility and persecution are inescapable. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That passage means if you live a Christian life with any kind of consistency, it is unavoidable that you will at least cause confusion 
and in many cases out and out hostility in the people around you. Since they have not had the same experience and their hearts are not rooted in the same hope. He reminds them once again that there's a sharp distinction between them and the world. And because they are identified with him, his followers will be treated in the world the same way as it treated him. The world does not know God. Therefore, the world is going to mistreat the people of God. Now, the world, once again, is set in sharp contrast. Now, where it says, if the world hates you, that does not imply that there is any doubt about the matter. Rather, it's the reverse. The world will certainly hate them. But when that happens, they have the knowledge that no new and surprising thing has befallen them. Remember that the world hated Jesus first. And because it hated him, it is not in the least bit strange that it comes to also hate all his true followers. It is not without significance that the disciples are to be known by their love and the world by its hatred. Now, of course, if believers are to effectively confront this world system, we cannot be part of it. Though we are in the world, we must not be part of that world. That's what James meant when he said, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. While in his first epistle, John noted that if anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father isn't in them. There can be no compromise with a satanic world system that is permanently and obstinately opposed to the kingdom of God. While worldly people hate those who follow Christ, they love each other. Unbelievers are comfortable with and supportive of other unbelievers. But we are called to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But a dark world does not want light, and a decaying world does not want salt. In other words, the believer is not just out of step. We are out of place. So here's my warning to us this morning as we get ready to close. If the world all loves us, watch out. That is not a good thing to be said about you. Remember what Paul told his protege Timothy, that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's a fact. If you are living a godly life, you're not going to make it into the who's who of this world system. It just doesn't work that way. So as we finish today, my question to us is simply this. What will our reaction be with all that information at this point in our lives? If it is a reaction to the world, it might be that we would write off discipleship as a bad idea. Discipleship? Well, that's a fine idea if it leads to the glory with Christ, but hatred? Persecution? A cross? Who wants that? Would it not be better to simply walk a bit closer to the world compromising its ways, and so that way we could escape the world's judgment. And that reaction initially seems wise so long as we give no thought to God's assessment of that situation. Write God off, and the option of a pleasant and favored life does seem preferable. But if we do that, we will never know the intimacy of being a true disciple. That's the reason why the world can't figure out why a Christian can do the things that they do. 
There were two Moravian missionaries back in the 1800s who had a great burden for the huge slave colony that was in the West Indies. They said, how can we bring the gospel of Christ to that slave colony? They realized the only way to do it was to sell themselves into slavery permanently, and they did it. Now, why would they do that? Because they knew who they were, they knew who Jesus was, and they knew what was important in life. And I can promise you this. 200 years later, those brothers aren't regretting that choice. We'll come back next week. I'm going to actually attempt to finish chapter 15. Let us pray. Well, we do live in a, a dark world. Anyone who just cuts on the news within five minutes knows how dark this world is. You say, Lord, it's under the, it's under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air. Satan is still running this joint down here. But we know, Lord, that you have given us victory. And we do shine as lights. And we do need to be salt in our culture. People are looking for answers. And, Lord, only you have those answers. And I pray that each one of us would leave this place and that we would go out into this world and show them that there is a better way. We ask in Christ's name, amen. This being the first Sunday of the month,